series this summer on the, the character and attributes of God from the Psalms. And our theme this morning is the justice of God. And our psalm is Psalm 72, which you can find on page uh, 10 of your worship folder. So here, God's word to us from Psalm uh, 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your peoples with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon, as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls in the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. And may all the kings fall down before him, all the nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made to him continually and blessings evoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains, may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may the people blossom in the cities like grass of the field. And may his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The word of the Lord. Father, we give you thanks for this psalm, for this picture of justice, a justice which we long for. Teach us what it means this morning that you are a God of justice that gives justice to the king. Help us to, to move towards that justice in our own lives and to be awed by and worship you as a God of justice. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, we pray that you'd move towards us and show yourself to us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Is it possible to speak about justice without God? Can you have human rights or a universal moral order without some kind of divine reality to ground it in. Now this is something that philosophers and thinkers have been debating for centuries, um, especially so in the 20th century. And on this question, I've always appreciated the honesty of the, Fr the French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. 
Uh, Sartre was a committed atheist. In fact, his philosophy is atheism in many ways. He popularized atheism in the 20th century. And what I really appreciate about Sartre was he was unafraid of considering the real difficulties of talking about morality and a moral order in a world without God. And in a famous lecture of his that he gave called Existentialism and Humanism, he says this, he makes the point very clear. Um, speaking of the Russian novelist Dostoevsky, he says, once Dostoevsky wrote, if God did not exist, everything would be permitted. If God didn't exist, everything would be permitted. And that for existentialism, which is his philosophy, is the starting point. Everything is indeed permitted if God does not exist. And man is in consequence forlorn, for he cannot find anything to depend upon either within himself or outside of himself. He discovers immediately that he is without excuse. And if God does not exist, we are not provided with any values or commands that could legitimize our behavior. Thus we have neither behind us, nor before us, nor above us, in a luminous realm of values, any means of justification, justification or excuse. We are left alone. Now many philosophers today uh, disagree rather vehemently with Sartre and his claims that without God, uh, there's no values to guide us in our behavior. And even Sartre himself seemed to have a difficulty in sort of living up to uh, that sort of reality of a, of a world without God, meaning everything is permitted. And, uh, but it all raises, again, this question I want to get before you that is, is I think, a very uh, important one for our experience of justice today. Is it possible to seek justice, to talk about justice in a world without God? Can you talk about human rights if there is no God? Now, what's really surprising is this. You know, Sartre gave this lecture in 1945. So we're over, you know, half a century, 75 years after the fact. And belief, um, you know, an embrace of atheism is more widespread than it ever was in the time of Sartre. I would say that most of our public life, even here in America, is guided by the assumption of God's non-existence. And yet, and yet, our world has not been taken over necessarily by lawlessness and immorality. We're not necessarily less concerned about justice today because of we don't believe in God or our culture doesn't embrace the reality of God. If anything, it seems like we're more concerned about human rights and justice. And I would go so far as to say that one of the marks of living in a secular age, and by secular age I mean a, a world that, that basically governs without an, an understanding of the existence of God as real, one of the marks of living in a secular age is not immorality, but hypermorality. A secular, as a secular society, rather than becoming indifferent and unconcerned with issues of justice, and human rights, we seem to be more concerned than ever. In fact, we're obsessed with it. And I would actually argue that in many ways, uh, the pursuit of justice, equality, or human rights is the religion of a secular age. I mean, watch, if you watch the NBA finals tonight, just pay attention to the commercials. Or you watch the Olympics. You know, justice, equality, right? 
We talk and think more about justice now than we seem to ever have without reference to God. And I think one of the underlying assumptions of our culture is that we don't need God to be moral. We don't need God to seek justice or know what justice is or to pursue justice. And I think this impacts us as believers. Even, even if you believe in God, even if you, you're a strong Christian, we in many ways have absorbed a lot of the, the assumptions of the way our culture talks about justice, which is justice is, is, is in us. We, we know what justice is. We don't need God for justice. Justice has become secularized. Now, what then does it mean in this kind of world and context to talk about a God of justice? To understand that how the righteousness of God and the justice of God intersect with the way we think and experience the world. What does it mean to know and worship a God whose chief, one of his chief attributes is that of justice? The Bible bears witness from start to finish to the reality that God is a God of justice. A great verse for this is, comes from a song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, where Moses speaks of God. He says, the Lord, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So this morning what I want to explore with you is what does it mean for us to reconnect our talk of justice with the reality of God as just? How do we do that? What does that look like? And Psalm 72 is a very good starting point for this. Um, Psalm 72 is a royal psalm. It is not directly uh, about God's justice, but rather the justice of the king. You see the ascription of the psalm. I don't know if it's in our, I don't think it carried over into our worship folder, but it, it's a psalm that's been attributed to King Solomon. Uh, some people think it maybe was written by David for the sake of Solomon or one of his sons who would rule. It's possible that this psalm was used for ordinations of kings. What I think is helpful about this psalm is that it has a very clear political context and reference point to the life of Israel. And what it does is it gives us this really beautiful picture of justice, of the king and what a just society and a just king looks like. And I think what's helpful for us and what's instructive for us is the way in which the psalm connects the justice of the king and the rule of the king with the justice of God. Look at where the psalmist starts in verse 1. And this is really of utmost importance. Justice starts and ends with God. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. This is such an important uh, assumption here that governs what this psalm says about what a just king or government must do and be, that justice and righteousness, and I'm going to just use those words somewhat interchangeably today, I'm not going to, they're, they're slightly distinguished, um, but they go together all the time in the Bible. You might think of righteousness as the positive content of justice, but, but justice itself has positive content, as it, you'll see. But justice and righteousness is not something that kings 
or governments or legislative bodies or judiciary, judiciaries possess in and of themselves. They may legislate laws that are just, but they are not the source of the justice of what makes those laws just. God in his person is the universal standard and source of all justice. Not just for the people of Israel as his covenant people, but God is the source of justice for all nations. The standard for all nations. And so when the Bible talks about government, government, according to the scriptures, is a mediator of God's justice in the world. That's the function of government in the Bible. It is a mediator of God's justice in the world. And again, this is true not just of God's covenant people Israel, but of all the nations. And what you see, especially in the prophets, communicated is that God will hold all nations accountable to justice. All nations will have to answer for the injustice in their society and in their world. Justice is an attribute of God that is universally revealed and is binding on all nations and all people, all tribes, everybody under heaven. So, this justice, too, is what we call um, a communicable attribute. Remember I talked about these two different, there's a communicable attribute and an incommunicable one. Incommunicable attributes are those that we cannot share, right? God's eternity, his omnipotence, omniscience. We will never participate or share in those. They cannot be given to us or communicated to us. But God's justice is, right? It's communicable. God can give it to us. We have to participate in it. We need it. That's the whole point of the first verse. Oh God, give the king your justice. The king needs to participate in God's justice. He needs a communication of it in his person in order to be just. I think this is a very important point. This psalm is a critique of despotic, tyrannical kings of the ancient world who claim for themselves to be the measure of justice and righteousness. So basically, whatever is just is whatever the king says. And so whatever the will of the king is, is what is just and what is true and what is legal. And the biblical world sets itself apart completely because the king is not divine. The king has a standard outside of himself. And let me just apply this to liberal democracy. We don't have kings. It applies to presidents, but it also applies to the will of the people, right? Just because the will of the people votes in a certain way or you take a poll about what people think about a certain moral issue and say the majority of people think that this issue is, is right or wrong does not mean that it's right or wrong. Just because the king says something is just doesn't mean it's just. Just because the will of the people and the majority of people polled think something is true or right doesn't necessarily mean it's just. Justice, justice comes from God and God alone. We are not the measure of justice. Justice is outside of us, right? Now, we as a culture, we talk a lot about justice. Um, the problem is, we can't seem to agree on what counts as just and unjust. We have many rival, dueling understandings of justice. 
The philosopher Alistair McIntyre has a book who sums up the problem very nicely uh, called Whose Justice, Which Rationality? And in that book, he, he explores the way in which there are these rival understandings of justice uh, in the world that are based on different understandings of reason and different understandings of what it means to be a person. And, you know, when we say the word justice, or we say we want justice now, uh, we assume oftentimes that we mean the same thing, that it has the same content, but the reality is, is it's not self-evident to us. We can't seem to agree on what is just or what is unjust. We have all these conflicting accounts around us, and so while we might be really passionate about justice, we can't seem to have a common agreement on what is just. Because we've made ourselves the measure of justice. But we all have different understandings of what it means to be human, and so we're in conflict. I mean, if you want to understand the political culture of America today and our various fights, what are we fighting about? We're fight we have rival understandings of justice, and we're dueling and duking it out. Right? So even though human beings desire justice universally and they seek justice universally, we are not the source of justice. The desire for justice is not the same thing as the possession of it or the ability to bring it. We are not the measure of justice. We are measured by justice. We must turn to God as the supreme lawgiver if we are to have justice. God as a source for all justice because he's the supreme lawgiver. So what does it mean exactly to say that God is the supreme lawgiver? God as a supreme God lawgiver is not... For God to be just... Justice is not external to the person of God. Justice is not external to the person of God. So when God gives the Ten Commandments, which is a a distilled version of justice, they're not arbitrary. It's not like God just rolled the dice of the universe, the moral dice, he's like, ah, 10. We're gonna, sit with, we're gonna settle with 10 rather than 13, and they're gonna be this rather than that. They're, they're not just random. It's not as if God is like, well, maybe I could have ordered the universe differently with a different set of moral uh, guidelines. They're not random or arbitrary. The law of God reflects the character of God. The justice of God in the law expresses his nature and character. I think what this means is that, again, justice is ex not external to who God is. See, when we talk about a human being being just or unjust, justice is a standard that measures them, that's outside of them. You, could, you truly can possess justice in your character to where it, 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 is, it, it describes who you are. But justice is always outside of us. We're always measured by it. But when we talk about God as just, we mean something fundamentally different. Justice is an essential quality of God and his character. Everything God does is just. He is perfect. All his ways are justice. God is justice. Justice is not external to God. Something by which we can measure God or that God has to keep himself accountable to, God is original justice. All justice originates with him. One writer puts it this way, justice when used of God is a name we give to the way God is. Nothing more. 
When God acts justly, he's not doing something, he's not doing so to conform to an independent criteria, but simply acting like himself in any given situation. The law of God, as that which expresses perfect justice and righteousness, is nothing less than an expression of God and his character. Such that to do justice or to understand justice is to know God. And this is a very important point in the scriptures. In the Bible, doing justice is part of what it means to know God. Doing justice is part of what it means to know God. Uh, I want to draw your attention, this is not in our text, but Jeremiah 22. Write that down and go back and read the story later. But in Jeremiah 22, the prophet, God addresses Jehoiakim, the king of Israel, through the prophet Jeremiah. Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim is a wicked king. But his father was Josiah, who was a righteous king. And God addresses him. He says this, speaking to Jehoiakim, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the, the fatherless, the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Cedar was very precious and, you know, would have been a, a mark of wealth and power. Do you think that you are king because you compete in cedar? Do, did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy, and it was well. Is not this to know me? I love that. I, it's easy to read over this, but God is saying through Jeremiah, that your father judged the cause of the poor and the needy, and it went well with him. Is this not what it means to know me? In other words, to do justice is to know God. But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for the shedding of innocent blood and the practicing of oppression and violence. To do justice is part of what it means to know God. There's more to know, there's more to knowing God than simply doing justice. Let's be very clear. But the scriptures are very clear about this. If you do not do justice, if you fail in the call to do justice, you're not knowing God. This is a theme that runs again throughout the whole Bible, but is especially prominent in the prophets. True worship of God involves doing justice. No nation, no culture, no church, no subgroup can make claims to true worship, no matter how good their theology, if they neglect the needs of justice in society. To do justice is to know God. Now this raises all a very important question. What is the content of justice? What does it mean to talk about justice? Of course, this is a very vast topic. Very simply, it's summed up in the commandments. But I want to draw your attention back to Psalm 72. And there's two things I want to draw your attention to. The first is this. Justice means the flourishing of all peoples and all creation. Justice in this psalm is, is depicted as flourishing and that justice and the pursuit of justice is something that is um, nurtured, kind of like an infant at the breast of his or her mother nursing. And in fact, in Psalm, in Isaiah 61, you have this picture of the nations coming to the king and nursing at the king's breast, getting milk. 
justice is spoken of in terms of nurture. So when we, we talk about justice today, our concepts are fairly narrow and more negatively defined. Justice is giving people what they are owed, what has been taken away from them. And it tends to be very individualistic in how we think about it. But in the Bible, justice is a really comprehensive concept. Justice is rooted ultimately in God's activity as the creator God. Um, and the justice, look at the way that, that, um, that, that the king is described. It uses this imagery of the justice of the king as like water that nourishes the land and provides stability and flourishing and blessing. May he, that, uh, verse 6, may, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass like showers that water the earth. In the days, in his days, may righteousness flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Justice leads to flourishing and abundance. It's not just for human beings, it's for all of creation, as it sort of intersects and interacts with one another. Going on later in the psalm in verse uh, 16, may there be abundance of grain in the land and on the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and the people blossom in the cities like the thrass of the field. Get that? People blossoming in the cities, like, like flowers, like plants, like trees in the cities. That's what justice brings. May people be blessed in him, and all nations call him blessed. Again, our, our, our talk of justice tends to be very individual, and it tends to be very uh, courtroom-like, forensic. And you, you have that in the scriptures, um, but the, the predominant imagery often with justice is organic, it's, it's holistic, it's, it's rooted and connected to, to God as the creator of all things, and all, how things all work together to create flourishing when they thrive. That is a comprehensive and positive view of justice. And I think what's important here to see is that justice for God is not abstract, it's not an abstract set of laws or rules that hover above creation, which means that the laws of God and the ordinance of God are, are not, they're not ends in themselves, they're not just for God's sake or just things that hover above creation. The laws of God exist for the sake of his creation, for his creatures and their flourishing. When God created the world, he made the world in justice and in righteousness. You could say that justice and righteousness is woven into the very fabric of creation, into the fabric of creatures. It structured all things. And to use contemporary terms to maybe capture this, when we talk about rights, there's a little bit of this, right? God has endowed his creatures with rights. And that's why I think, you know, despite the fact that as a culture that we've moved away from God and the way we think about the world and the way we, we, we reason, we haven't been able to move away from justice and a concern for justice. Why? Because God created us. We're his image bearers. And he has made justice and righteousness part of the fabric of creation. And that even though we lack it, we still desire it. Even when we don't properly understand the basis of our dignity or where it comes from, we still want it because God has created us and we are precious to him. 
And this is leading to the last point here. Um, the justice of God reveals to us God's uh, deep love and concern for his creation and his creatures, but most especially those who are most vulnerable in society. The character of God as just is revealed most fully in his special care and his special concern for the poor, for the vulnerable, for the oppressed, those who have become victims of oppression and violence. Look at um, our psalm again. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. He delivers the needy when he calls the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. A distinguishing mark of the just king is that he gives special attention, special care and priority to the most vulnerable and needy within society. And this is a mark just not of the king, but of God himself. And there are dozens of scriptures I could give you, but let me give you just one. This is from Psalm 146. God upholds the cause of the free, uh, I'm sorry, God upholds the cause of the oppressed. It gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, and he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The poor, the orphan, the widow, the resident alien. Uh, Nicholas Watersorf calls this the quartet of the vulnerable. You, you find this, this fourfold quartet of, 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 of vulnerable people repeated again and again in the scriptures. All of these people are vulnerable because they don't have access to the traditional protections um, and social structures that support the majority of people. And the fact of the matter is that those who suffer injustice and oppression in this world are disproportionately poor and politically powerless. Wealth and power offers us protection. It offers us um, advantage that we can protect ourselves from being taken advantage of. And so those who are poor or homeless or, or orphans or who are widows or who are immigrants, they don't have access to the same protections, the same stable uh, social networks and, and, and access to wealth and capital and all that that the majority of us do. And they disproportionately become uh, targets for being taken advantage of, oppressed, or extorted. That's why the Lord has special concern and care for those. And that's why we as a church should as well. Now, unfortunately, I, this is a very controversial idea uh, in our political climate. Um, it certainly has been an idea that's been weaponized in all the wrong ways, but just because it's an idea that's been misused doesn't mean it's not true. It's very biblical. But the objection, uh, let me just, some of the objections to this. This seems like we're seeing that God chooses sides, right? That God is partial. But isn't justice have to do with impartiality? How can you say that God chooses sides? Or that justice is impartial? Don't all people deserve justice? Doesn't God love all people equally? Doesn't all people, don't all people deserve his special care and concern, right? 
again, we hear this echoed in the, the you know, let's to put a point on it, right? We talk about Black Lives Matter, and a lot of people say, well, all lives matter, right? This has become a politically charged idea in our culture. Let me just offer a couple qualifications. When we say that God has a special care and concern for this quartet, for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the vulnerable, you put in whatever, we're not saying that poor, vulnerable people are not sinners. Nor are we saying that there's something inherently virtuous about being poor, <laughs> or being a widow, or being an orphan, or being, being a person who has experienced lots of racism. It doesn't make you inherently more virtuous. That's not what we're saying. And being a victim of injustice does not <clears throat> mean that you yourself cannot commit acts of injustice. But it does mean that because of your vulnerability socially, you are a special object of God's concern and care. One more qualification. In saying that God has a special care and concern for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, we're not saying that having wealth, having power, or what we call now privilege, right? in and of itself makes you morally suspect or part of an oppressor class. Just because a person or a group of people has access to, to wealth and power does not equate with them being oppressors. I think that, I mean, again, like, that's not what this, this verse, this, this category means. But with that said, while the mere possession of wealth and power and we all here, by and large, possess this. So I'm talking to all of us for the most part here. Don't exclude yourself from this category. To be middle class is to have wealth and power. Even though you experience this, doesn't make you necessarily oppressive and unjust. But it certainly puts you at risk to do it. And the biggest problem that this does is that having just the social stability that wealth and and social power brings, insulates us from those who don't have it and their experiences, and the ability to understand and experience the world the way they experience it. It can easily blind us to that reality. So when, when the scripture says that, that God has a special care for those who are orphans and widows and the poor and the vulnerable, it doesn't mean that God loves the poor more than those who are not poor. It not says that God takes sides. But rather what it means is that God in his love is especially sensitive to those who are most vulnerable within the family, those who are prone to be denied justice, those who are, who are more likely to become victims of schemes and, you know, whatever it might be. Just like a parent has special care and concern for the really small child in the mix. It doesn't mean... That parent doesn't love the older kids, but the older kids just aren't as vulnerable. They're growing up. They can take care of themselves to a certain extent. That's what we mean. See, the justice of God revealed in the scriptures forces us to recognize, I believe, that there are certain people in the world that are simply more vulnerable, that are prone to be abused and taken advantage of and oppressed, that there's inequity in this world, and it breaks the heart of God. And as God's people, it should break our hearts. 
Now, what it means to actually act on this and do something about it, that's, that's a, a dozen sermons. <laughs> but our hearts must reflect the heart of God that we have a special care and concern for those who are vulnerable. In ancient Israel, care for the poor was um, required and was meant to be a major preoccupation of the king and his rule. And God's care for the poor was connected, or I'm sorry, God, the king's care for the poor and government was well connected with the well-being and the flourishing in the land. How we treat the least of these in our midst is an index of true flourishing of a city and a nation. And so true of the church as well. How we treat the least of these is an index of true flourishing. And what we see in this psalm is that the dominion and the acclaim of the king is directly proportional to his defense and protection of the most vulnerable. That is true of true government, true justice, and of God. Let me just close with this. You, know, you look at this psalm and you think about the reign of David, you think about the reign of Solomon. Both of them failed miserably. <laughs> Every king of Israel failed miserably to live up to this standard, this vision of justice. One of the things you see in the psalm as well is that the justice of God leads us to and reveals to us the God and his love. God as the Redeemer. When God looks upon a world and he sees a people that are oppressed and in bondage, his heart cries out and it moves him in justice and in love. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Precious is their blood in his sight. See, we tend to put justice and love in opposition or like they're fighting out with one another, but in the Bible, these are, all, these are in harmony, not in opposition. And, and the person of God, love and justice go together. They move together. God is moved by love, and he's moved by justice. And when God comes to redeem, he comes out of love, and he comes in justice, to bring justice. And we see that love and justice perfectly embodied in the person of Jesus. We know that this psalm uh, doesn't fit any earthly kingdom that has ever existed except one. One that made its advent in the time of Jesus and will someday come again when he returns. He is the true king who redeems our life from oppression and violence. In his sight, our blood is precious. And the way he redeems is he becomes the one who redeems us by the shedding of his own precious blood, who himself becomes an object of oppression and violence. This is the God of justice and love that redeems us and redeems our lives. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that in your justice you sent your Son. In your love you sent your Son. Lord, we are an unjust people. We are unjust um, in our hearts and we are unjust in the way we live. And we need and we cry out for your justice. We cry out for you to come. Lord, we in our culture are um, deeply conflicted about being just and what that means. Lord, I pray for our church. I pray for your, your church um, broadly that we could unite 
in our understanding of justice, not around a political party or a, a political philosophy, but around the person of Jesus and your holy scriptures. May we let the justice we find in the scriptures reshape all of our categories and how we think and talk, but also, most importantly, in how we act and live. Lord, we uh, cannot bring justice to this world and to this society. Only you can do that. But Lord, we do pray that as your people, you would allow us to live justly and to bear witness to that just kingdom that is to come when Jesus returns again. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.